just wanted to put a disclaimer up front that as part of this episode, Shanna shares her story, which involves sexual abuse, alcoholism, and suicidal thoughts. And again, that's as, that's a story as old as bloody time. Take your toughest mate, take your wildest mate, take your craziest mate, scratch the surface, and it's anything but. G'day and welcome to episode 65 of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Ollie Lalive, and thanks a lot for tuning in for another week of the podcast. In the last 65 episodes, it's certainly kept me occupied, entertained, and inquisitive about the people that make up the agriculture industry. This week, I'm very excited. She took a bit of chasing to get on the podcast, but I can't wait to share our next guest with you. But first, I'd like to thank our episode sponsor, LAWD, specialists in agribusiness valuations and transactions. LAWD have been a supporter. They're actually the first ones that I guess really believed in the humans of agriculture vision and and spurred me on and I guess have held me accountable to keep on keeping on and uh, I truly am thankful to them uh, for their support. You can check out all their listings on their website at www.lawd.com.au. My next guest describes herself as being incredibly ordinary, but she's a farm kid who has had a successful career in corporate agriculture as a journalist and a photographer. However, for Shanna Wan, it's her ability to relate to others that is having the most profound impact. She founded Sober in the Country in 2015. As she describes, it's certainly not about being prohibitionist to alcohol, more about making good choices when it comes to drinking and looking out for your friends. There were glimpses during her teenage years as to some of the adversities that she would face during her life, but nothing could prepare her for what would be her biggest challenge, and subsequently her biggest opportunity. Shan, I'm bloody excited to have you here. Welcome to the Humans of Agriculture podcast. Hey, Ollie. Good intro, by the way. That was well done. (laughs) I've nailed it. (laughs) You've nailed it. I love seeing what people come up with and what they pull out of the yeah, and I'm always going, that's a cracker. I'll have to use that later on. Thank <laughs> can you. Can I get a copy for that? <laughs> yeah, can I borrow, borrow your amazing journalism skills? No, thank you, mate. Seriously, it's really good to be here. It's great. I'd love to yeah. peel a few layers back and go back to who, who was Shanna as a kid? What was, what was your upbringing? Oh, goodness gracious. Um, so we actually came over from Zimbabwe, um, would you believe, when I was a little six-year-old grommet. And um, my dad got us out of Zimbabwe because it was in a lot of strife as a country. So we landed in Australia. Actually, I, my first couple of years of life was spent in a caravan on the banks of the Mihai River. <laughs> yeah, cool. Learning how to say some bad, yeah, learning how to say some bad swear words. Anyway, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I made, I sort of always grew up in Northwestern New South Wales, but for me, you could say that my childhood was that of a, a free range feral bush kid. So I was very fortunate to then grow and grow up on a property. And I just, well, actually not much has changed. I didn't brush my hair then and I don't brush it much now. I literally, I literally was out in the paddock with horses, jokes, dogs, rescuing critters, jumping logs bareback on my old horse. Um, I was just a typical bush kid. And the older I get, the more bloody grateful I am that I had that freedom to be that kid because 
you don't know how lucky you are till you're pretty old. <laughs> and now I look back on that, that extraordinary adventurous childhood. So that was me as a little kid and it was wonderful. Um, and following in the footsteps of plenty of other bush kids, I had to go to boarding school, unfortunately. And it sucked for me. I hated it. I pathologically did not like my boarding school experience but I need to throw a disclaimer in there in case some principals are listening <laughs> I know that everything has changed a lot right I get that I get that we've evolved massively in the boarding school scene but when I went it was it was fairly rigid and I was just confined and suffocated and I did not I didn't thrive or flourish at all and I think life started to go a bit sideways for me really from the time I went to boarding school I bloody hated it <laughs> sorry boarding school people <laughs> you were put in a cage metaphorical mm. cage in terms of that do you, do you think the boarding school and the challenges there started to shape what was to come next I, yeah I'm trying to understand as a young girl what what did you want to do as soon as you got out of there Oh, do you know what? The only thing I had in my mind was to basically knock people out of my way and say, don't you tell me what to do, how to do it or when to do it. I was, I, I see now so clearly that I was, I was such a good natured kid. Hey, I was such a good natured kid, but it, that confinement for me created this rebellion. Oh God. I just, so when those, I still remember um, checkout day, I was just like, Felt like I was going to explode out of my own skin. I just couldn't get out of there fast enough. And um, and I really was just hell-bent on sprinting out the front gates. Um, I bolted with my ears pinned back and said, I'm out of here. Um, so for me, I just saw wide open spaces and freedom as my ticket. And um, in not in my wildest dreams <laughs> did I imagine I'd be jumping out of the fry pan into the fire. But... Um, Look, I'll say this again and again to a lot of people. Um, I came out of I came out of that really isolated childhood environment. I mean, we didn't have bloody playgroups and social things like kids now are better equipped socially by the age of five than I was at forty five. It's unbelievable. <laughs> but you know, for me, I was just socially inept on every level. I did not understand social stuff at all and our you know strict confined boarding schools certainly did not do me any favors and so when I hit freedom and the world at a full tilt rebellious sprint it was like I was this bizarre mix of this over exuberant confident I was a cute little blonde you know sort of thing just flat biscuit out into the wide world and it was just a recipe for disaster you know I was there going bring it on bring it on come at me with everything you've got but I had no skills and um, yeah, so, you know, I, I talk about my first year, I took a gap year between school and university um, and I just wasn't equipped for it, Ollie. I just wasn't equipped and I ended up in a bad situation with some ordinary characters and that, and that year for me, instead of being my ticket to freedom and life and joy was <laughs> just a shocker. Um, I, had a, I had a terrible, terrible year and um I know people who've heard my story before would be familiar with this, but those who are not 
So that year for me was out on a station, Jillarooing, because I, I just had to get back to horses and nature and, you know, stock and whatnot. But um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was in a place that um, was not home and not familiar. And as I said, it wasn't a great environment. And I had multiple um, horrendous experiences that year from date rape to sexual assault um, times three. And yeah, by the time that gap year was over, um, I'd been battered and, and uh, bruised and, yeah, it was, um, how do you even explain that? It's like you're a fledgling learning how to fly, but then your wings are clipped and you just get smashed to smithereens before you've even, you know, gotten your, gotten your landing gear off the ground. So, yeah, it was pretty horrible. It was pretty horrible. And I think, I think the, the, the hopelessly socially ill-equipped kid that I was just didn't have anything in I didn't have any, I didn't have anything to deal with that either. So yeah, when I went to university, <laughs> oh God, it was like fry pan fire. Now party scene, add booze. <laughs> yeah. Bloody hell. Yeah. So no great surprise that the next thing for me was hitting a university. Um, and would you believe I went to university in Canberra? No one expects that, but I was no. down south and I just... What the hell yeah. would you go there of all places? Why would I do that? I know, weird, right? I was down south working on a horse stud and um, my beautiful mum and dad had kept saying to me, you really should go to uni. And I was like, mm, okay, then if that's what everyone says I should do. I suppose I should do it. And Canberra was not far off, so I just signed up and went and did um, admin and office management and whatever the hell useless things I can't remember. And um, <laughs> I, should, I don't They're say that. I don't say that. They're all good skills. <laughs> I was going to say that. It sounds like it's dismissing people who do that. It's not, but I was terrible at it. I was so bad. It was the wrong fit for me. But what was the right fit was learning how to party. <laughs> and um, I was a novelty because I was this little country girl with my Cuban heeled boots and bloody, and you know, out. blonde ponytail. Yeah, flat biscuit. Um still weirdly outgoing but hiding this horrendously damaged battered interior sort of um pain and so yes university was basically Shanna learning how to drink like a fish and 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 earning the inimitable um honor of being fresher of the year which basically means drunkest on ground out of I don't know how many thousands of students but yay go me yeah so my my skill for (laughs) I was so proud of it at the time I've got to tell you Ollie I could out drink the uh the first um grade rugby club skull team can I I really want to jump in and ask that because you mentioned the time on the station was pretty confronting in terms of what happened? There was date rape. There was, yeah, multiple sexual um, challenges there. What's your earliest challenge or adversity that you faced that you can relate back to alcohol impacting you negatively? Oh, yeah, the date rape, number one. Yeah, because we were all drunk. And, um, yeah, because so social, social life in Australia, as you know, and in the bush, um, pretty much always comes back to grog and so that that episode happened after a trip to the country pub on a weekend after we'd finished mustering and whatnot yeah so I I could I could say to you with my hand on heart that every single traumatic experience that year and every traumatic experience following that year all had 
common denominators of grog, every single one of them, without fail. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty shit. It's pretty shit. So, so you go through university, you manage to out drink bloody everyone else that's there and, and probably a few people mm. in the years to come. You then move off into the, the corporate world <laughs> as such, down the path yep. of journalism. Was, yep. Were the wheels starting to fall off or, or was it, yeah, what were those first few years of your career like? Well, actually, it's funny. Journalism came after a stint where I was in um, corporate ag with the likes of, of some multinational chemical mobs and whatnot. Um, so in my 20s, and I'll freely tell anybody, my entire 20s was a decade of disaster because I jumped from all of that straight into an abusive relationship, which is a very common story, unfortunately. Um, people who've been... Uh, mistreated fall into the same habits it's oh god it feels like a cliche but anyway I did that and was in a nasty nasty relationship and anyway so and along with that came alcohol abuse because that particular person was an alcoholic as well so alcohol but I didn't recognize that because in Australia we called him a legend because he drank deadly amounts of grog um yeah anyway (laughs) um so what um so the, so my 20s were spent further being pummeled into the ground emotionally, but what I was doing was getting up during the day and going to work. I must have had a good, strong fighting spirit because it was, I don't know how I did it, Ollie, but I climbed my way up the corporate ladder. And um, back in the day, <laughs> you know, there's such... I'm only 47 or whatever I am. I don't even know. I can never remember my own age, something like that. <laughs> but... Only a couple of decades ago, you would not believe how different it was, right, when we were starting out. And if you were a girl going into corporate ag, you were in a male-dominated arena. And may I just say, I love blokes. I love blokes. I think they're the greatest ever. So I'm not, you know, I'm not anti-blokes ever. Never have been, never will be. Love them. Love you all. But when you're trying to crack into that, ah, it's hardcore. And it was really hardcore back then because... I had decided that in order to fit in and make my mark, I needed to drink like the blokes, smoke like the blokes, swear like the blokes. I, I felt like I had to really um, master my masculine side to fit in. And I, don't, I think I might have invented a bit of that in my own head in some ways, but I reckon the reason for that was because I'd been so damn stomped on and chewed up and spat out that, I felt like if I went into that position vulnerable and soft, I never would have survived. Mm-hmm. So it was like Shanna on the inside was a soft little mushy, gushy butterball that just wanted to love and be loved. But my exterior was becoming increasingly tough, impenetrable, you can't hurt me and whatever you do, I'll do it 10 times harder kind of thing, you know. And, again, that's a, that's a story as old as bloody time. Take mm. your toughest, mate take your wildest mate, take your craziest mate, scratch the surface, and it's anything but. I defy anyone to contradict me on that because anyone who's got a wild friend will tell you that deep underneath they're the sweetest, softest person, right? Mm. But we develop these exteriors because of a reason. And so, yeah, that, that whole 20s corporate me in ag was just this contradiction of 
wild, crazy Shanna over here, continuing to out drink and out party everybody to fit in, quote unquote. But in my personal life, I was going from one disastrous relationship to another um, and just getting smashed, <laughs> like emotionally, metaphorically, and literally on the grog. Um, oh my God, it was just a, it was just a freaking nightmare because I'd, I'd mastered the art of being Shanna the crazy, but that wasn't who I was. So I'd get into a relationship and whoever the human being was that I'd, you know, fallen in love with would discover that I was actually just completely soft and broken. And they would be going, holy shit, this isn't what I signed up for. <laughs> so I was, as you were talking then, I was fascinated because you're talking about, yeah, the, the hard exterior, but you've now got a... Hi, I'm Pia, horticulture and sugar analyst at Rabobank, and I'm here to share our latest insights on Australia's vegetable market. Did you know in 2023, Australia produced over $5.8 billion worth of vegetables, though only 4.3% of this was exported. Like many other countries, the Australian vegetable industry relies mostly on its domestic market. In fact, only 7% of global vegetables produced are traded between countries. But we are starting to see that trend change. Global trade is growing at a faster rate than production, and countries with low cost production are seeing the highest growth rates. You can learn more about trends in the vegetable market on our latest Rabo Research Australia podcast, Mapping World Vegetable Trade, or reach out to me via the Rabobank Australia social media channels to learn more. And well, I feel like I know him just through watching your story. Um, but Timbo, how did Timbo come into the equation and, and when? We actually were mates in our 20s. We worked for the same corporate company, would you believe? And he used to come and stay in the cottage that I lived in, in one of um, the towns I lived in, which was St. George in Queensland. He was just wanny. He was just a really nice, really decent bloke. So therefore I had zero interest. Um, <laughs> You're bloody boring. Because <laughs> <clears throat> he was a nice guy. Ew, whatever. Like seriously, <laughs> he was such a decent bloke. And I was in that hell-bent stage of my life where I was only attracted to people who were going to be awful to me because that's part of the whole psychology of a damaged damaged um, woman. And and funnily enough, he was anything but boring. Timmy is a he's a pretty loose unit in his own way, but because he was so lovely and so decent, he just wasn't on my radar. Isn't that funny? Then the whole decade of disaster of my twenties finally rolled into my thirties. And have you heard the expression only of people doing geographicals? You do a geographical. Have you heard that one? No. What is it? It's when you pack up and leave and go to another place or town. Oh, I've done that. It's this, called doing. Yeah, <laughs> doing a geographical, right? And a lot of people in a similar situation to what I was in do geographicals because we're trying to escape our situation and thinking that if I just move to another town or if I just get another job or if I just if I just do all of these things, it will fix me, right? But yeah, of course, gotcha. wherever you bloody <laughs> wherever you bloody run to, there you are. So mm. I hadn't worked that out yet, though, and I, I kept doing geographicals. And in my early 30s, my latest geographical was to bugger off to the Northern Territory to become a tour guide in Alice Springs. Um, Sounds all which, right. FYI. Well, it was amazing, but I truly would not recommend it if you're a budding alcoholic. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, it was really funny. Um, my mate, Wani, um, 
had been up there doing it and he'd been messaging a heap of mates saying you you guys should get up here it's bloody good fun and great way to see Australia and of course me being me looking for any excuse to do geographical I was the one who responded and said oh Wani what's involved how do you do this and he said oh you'd be great bloody just send him a letter and I'll give you a lift up there if you like in August I'm going back to the territory and bang it was on and I got a lift with Timmy and it was really funny Many years had passed since I'd seen him. <laughs> this is so funny. And um, he, I still remember when he walked out of the house um, when I went to grab a lift and I just saw him with my 30-year-old eyeballs. <laughs> <laughs> and, and my 30-year-old eyeballs went, hang on a minute here, big girl. You, you might have missed something here. <laughs> Um, and I remember Timbo just giving me this big cheeky grin and a hug and I went oh no my heart skipped a beat and I went oh you've got to be kidding Shannon not again and I knew then that Timmy was he was a I just I just felt something very profound this pull towards him and of course I got really pissed within about three days of us being on this road trip and oh my god messy anyway um and it was then that Timbo knew I wasn't going great. He knew I wasn't going great. But within five minutes flat, I decided I was going to fall in love with him. And <laughs> how's this for irony? After turning my nose up at him a decade before for being such a lovely guy and therefore of no interest to a wild woman <laughs> like me, um, here I was flinging myself at him and him going, oh, look, thank you, but no, thank you. <laughs> How funny. <laughs> basically said sweet he said what do you say Shane you're a bit bloody you're a bit of a handful for me no offense <laughs> and so you know people think we have this amazing perfect love story not even close <laughs> so the whole <laughs> you know what the Tim and Shanna story is a story of huge amounts of dysfunction and as I say to people, he always knew I was a great girl. Yes, he was attracted to me and I was attracted to him and and blah, blah, blah. But he didn't know he'd basically hooked up with an alcoholic and I didn't know I was an alcoholic. And so having that as the foundation for our relationship was just a nightmare because it only got worse once we moved to Alice Springs, which is like literally alcoholic capital of planet Earth. Mm. Um, no offence, Alice, but it's it's just known. The territory is known for being you know, Booze City and um, Alice Springs infinitely more so. And, um, yeah, everything just, ex it just got amplified. But I had a, I love Alice Springs and I loved, loved our time up there. But in the background, I was quietly slipping, you know, further and further into the cracks of um, being a high-functioning alcoholic. And, um, yeah, it was a very turbulent relationship, let's put it that way. Yeah. Poor Timmy. What a good boy. <laughs> anyway, you, you finally grabbed him. What? Yeah, it took some work, eh? <laughs> what was the moment where things truly, like where the, the wheels really fell off? Where were you? Um, and I'd be intrigued. <clears throat> who was it you'd pushed away when you got to that stage? And probably more importantly, who was it that had stayed by you through all of it? Yeah, good. Another good question, Ollie. So, nailing them. So the thirties. <laughs> yes, go, Ollie. No, it's good stuff, and I and I appreciate the guidance because it's so bloody hard to summarize a life, you know, into a potty. 
Mm. Um, but in, I suppose what I should say before I get to that bit is that when we finally grew up, left the territory, came back to the Northwest, got real jobs, that's where journalism and photography came back into it, by the way. Um, can you hang on a sec? Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. Apologies. Right. Um, yeah, so w- when we came back to, you know, real life, grew up, got real jobs, et cetera, and we thought, okay, well, we better get married and have a family is a very long story cut short mm. when I finally pinned pinned down Wani. <laughs> um, and we we struggled. We couldn't have kids. And um, long story short, again, is that the grief of being a person fighting invisible alcoholism plus struggling with infertility plus, oh, man, just basically all of the chickens came home to roost in my late 30s all the dysfunction, all the grief, all the rage, all the anger, all of the, all of the just came and just went whack. Here we are, all of your little demons. So we're just going to smash you. And so by my late 30s, this high-functioning alcoholism had become struggling to function. (laughs) And, yeah, so, you know, by about the age of 40, I was in big, serious trouble and, you know, what's extraordinary, Ollie, is that um, I still didn't think I could, I didn't think it was possible I could be one of these people called an alcoholic. How rude. How rude. <laughs> I worked 14-hour days. I worked really hard. I had a successful business. I had good hair. Thanks very much. I I was just so offended if anyone was dared to suggest I had a problem with alcohol. <clears throat> and um, But by the time I was, yeah, like 41, I was having regular blackouts, always hurting myself, humiliating myself at parties, blacking out at the bar. Oh, just, you know, that messy, untidy, awful thing no one wants to be around. That's that's where I was at. And, you know, as I say to people, it's when you're in your 20s and everyone's doing it and it's a competition, it's not so obvious. When you're in your 30s and you can get away with being called a cougar and still half a novelty, possibly can still sneak it under the radar. But when you're the 40-year-old woman in that position, it's not funny anymore. There's no more excuses. There's no more grace. There's no more, oh, Shan's just had a shocker. It's like, holy shit, Shan's in big trouble. What's going on here? Mm. And... You know, for me by then, yeah, look, I'd, I had taken myself away from everybody and that's also part and parcel of alcohol addiction. You start to remove yourself and you start to isolate. You're like, you're like, a, sick, you're like a sick dog dragging yourself off under a tree to, to, to die, honestly. It's horrific. Yeah. It's actually horrific. Um, and if I hadn't taken myself away from people, they'd started to remove themselves from me because I was just toxic, I was destructive, I was in denial, and I was I was a bloody walking hazard to be around. And oh, it was shocking, mate. It was a very, very it was very awful. <laughs> it was awful. Yeah, shit. Yeah. And so yeah, what it's not real good. Was there a definitive moment mm. where the metaphorical shit hit the ceiling? You <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there was. Um, there was. So uh, I guess, is that funny? Timelines are shaky for me, but it was late 2014 or early 2015, whatever it was. We'd had another fertility failure. 
Um, and so I mentioned before we we couldn't have a family, and I I was squarely convinced the reason for that was I wasn't healthy enough to conceive. And at this stage, it was really funny. I'd go through periods of sobriety, right? Could mm-hmm. be a couple of months because oh, I was wow. so desperate to have a family. Yeah, so I'd pull myself together, pull myself out of the pit, go hard, go 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 go. Do be I'd be doing as well as I possibly could. We'd go and have a fertility treatment. And then it would be a negative result. And each time it was a negative, I'd fall off the wagon and just go bushka and plummet into despair. And um, yeah, all of that culminated in another failure in, oh, I think it was, it was a Boxing Day 2015. No, that's Christmas, whatever, whatever. It was around that time. And I remember um, being at a party where all of the people were gathered on the lawn out at my beautiful husband's family's place. There were kids, families, pregnant people, people with toddlers. And I could just, I think without fail, one of the most cruel things, I, oh, this always makes me so emotional. Um, one of the hardest things I reckon I've experienced, infinitely harder than all of the traumas, was um, going through the period of my late 30s, um, watching everyone have kids and I've always just loved kids. So it was so hard. It was so hard. And I hated myself so much for being the reason we couldn't get there. And um, I just remember the grief of all of that just culminated and culminated and culminated. And um, I remember this party, everyone was together, all the babies, all the newborns, all the pregnant tummies. And um, there's me, you know, just, dead shit on the sidelines who still doesn't fit in no matter how hard I try full of self-pity you know full of grief and I was watching Tim with one of my little nieces and oh I just glanced over at him and I just saw the pain in his eyes and I just went oh this is so shit and it just made me feel just a despair that I cannot describe um and self-hatred Oh, sorry, isn't it amazing? It just still it's You're getting still me too. <laughs> I know, I know, sorry. No. But it's good. People need to hear this because um Oh, it's gut wrenching. This is what alcohol oh, it's awful. And um people need to hear it because this is what alcoholism does to people and families and futures. It destroys it and it takes it. And that was the worst thing alcohol robbed of me. Anyway, um I remember that day I um I just walked away from that crowd. I just walked away. I didn't say a thing to anybody. I just I just walked across the paddock, got in my car, drove to the bottle shop and um got three for one, because there's always a nasty three for one special at every bottle shop in the continent, <laughs> which is really convenient for alcoholics. And um I remember just going home and I was just on a mission. And, you know, I'd been suicidal. I'd had, I think they call it suicidal ideation, whatever. I'm not up with all the trendy stuff, but I had been not wanting to live for quite some time. And that day, I, I reckon I reckon I was right on the tipping point. Um, I don't know what happened, though, because I was in a blackout. But all I know is that I woke up at the bottom of a flight of concrete stairs with blood just pouring out of my face. And... Um, and I was scooped up by um, Timbo and put into emergency. And I don't remember any of this. All I remember is um, coming to in emergency with 
tubes and God knows what coming out of me and strangers leaning over me in masks and just, and I just had one of those holy shit moments, you know, what have you done, Shan? What have you done now? And that was the moment. That was the defining moment. And I, and I still remember very clearly um, waking up the next day at home and Timbo sitting next to me just with tears running down his face. And, um, and I was waiting for him to ask what every single person asks every addict in the globe, right, which is why? Why do you do this? Why can't you stop? Mm. And you know what? We don't have answers because it's a, it's a full-blown addiction that we have no control over in the end, right? So you don't know how to answer that question. And that day he said to me, he just looked at me and he just said, you can't help this, can you? And that was it. I just went, no, I can't. And I just finally realised that I was, I was stuffed. Like I, I was stuffed. I was going to die. I was going to die. And, you know, many years later, my sister-in-laws told me that they'd been planning what they would do and say at my funeral because they knew it was close. Isn't that terrible? Holy hell. They were waiting. Yeah, my whole family was waiting to get the phone call, including Tim from ambulance, police, whoever, to say, we've found Shanna. Yeah, from, wow. You know, dead from suicide. We've found Shanna in a car crash. Everyone was waiting for my death because it was, was going to be an if, not a when. Sorry, a when, not an if. And, yeah. and I guess that day I saw that, yeah, I saw that was in front of me and I went, oh, wow, you're literally going to die if you don't get help. And I fought one last time, Ollie. I just decided I was going to fight one last time. And to this day, I'm very grateful for that shit hitting the fan one final time because that's what prompted me to um, choose to fight one last time. And (laughs) it's such a cheesy little story. I rang a helpline. (laughs) And um, I'll tell you what, you talk about little God moments. Um, I rang AA, would you believe? Because I just didn't know what else to do. I had tried everything. And in the end, it wasn't really even so much AA that helped. I mean, that was part of it. But what was the game changer was I got put in touch with a girl from a town 300 k's away who could have been my sister. She was my age. She was a professional. She still looked and sounded and... Um, sorry, she dressed well, looked looked smart, looked the goods. You know what I mean? And I had this preconceived notion in my head that alcoholics were homeless people with brown paper bags who drank all day and every day. Mm. And this girl walked out of a building to meet me and I went, you cannot possibly be the girl I spoke to. You look lovely and healthy and normal and young and well-groomed. And my stupid, stupid, stupid brain had never imagined that was possible. Because Hollywood told me you had to look like a scruffy person on Skid Row. Mm. And now I understand. I understand that that's just where it ends up. It begins here and it ends up there. And I realised if I didn't pull up my behaviour, that's exactly where I'd be going. And, um, yes, I was very lucky to meet a beautiful girl who said, Shan, you're going to stop dicking around and admit that you can't drink. And once you get your head around that, and stopped viewing it as a problem and, and realised there are solutions, there's a way out of this. She said, it's yeah. alcoholism, mate. It's a disease. It's going to kill you. So you can keep pretending you're normal or you can just accept it for what it is and you can, you can work your bum off 
to get out of it. And I said, I want to get out of it. Please help me. And that was the turning point. Yeah. 2015, February. Yeah. I, I think it, I made it, a decision. Mm. It's incredible. Like there's, I suppose, a, a little theme under here. And I, I want to share a story with you in a second. But when you were saying in the mm. corporate world and it was about putting your armor up and not embracing vulnerability, but I feel like <clears throat> as a society, we're now mm. starting to change our views on, yeah. yeah, just being our true authentic selves. And it sounds so cliche, but it's not. But I think what's really interesting, and it might resonate with people who are listening, but in my friendship circle, we've got, yeah, like we all have a hell of a lot of fun, but we've got one mate um, who was is always the life of the party. He's the one who's mm-hmm. so much fun to be around. And over the last couple of years, we were saying like, and in terms of drinking, he He's out of control in the sense that he just couldn't pull up. And we're all saying amongst each other, he's either going to end up DUI or he's going to end up dead. And when it comes to being brave and having those conversations, we were all saying it to each other, but we never once pulled him up. And thank Christ it was DUI that he got done for. But I reckon, like, I know talking to friends right around the country and it is, we've got this affiliation that fun is associated with agriculture it's not associated with people and connection and yeah holy shit when you start to think about it like we was we're so close to losing a friend and all we could do is talk to each other saying it's DUI or dead but not once did we front him up and and actually have that chat how what's your advice to young people who who have that friend yeah wow Oh, yeah, it's hard, isn't it? Um, you know, whenever I whenever I do a keynote talk, whether it's at a, a university or, or on a station or whatever, I say that to people. I said, you know what? Can you just do me a favour? Check on your wild friend. Check on your wild friend. Are you sure they're wild? Mm. Are you sure they're okay? Because I pretty much guarantee if you bet your bottom dollar, that is a smokescreen for something else. Like, yes, we can all be outrageous and outgoing and do crazy stuff in a given moment for sure. But if you've got a mate who is consistently exhibiting that behaviour and they can't have one, they've got to have a thousand. If they cannot pull up, if they're always doing the crazy stuff, that's pretty much a a massive red flag. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I am so passionate, so passionate about is educating our bushmates to say, don't let that be okay. Don't shout your mate another double rum if they're on the top of a bar in a crowd about to get their bloody clothes off. Because is that five minutes of entertainment for you for perpetual humiliation for them, let alone in an age of bloody social media where that stuff never goes away? Mm. Be a good mate. Pull them off that damn table. Grab the mortar and say, you've had enough. We've got to get you out of here. Whether they listen to you or not, who knows? Alcohol makes us very stubborn. And I was the sort of person on the grog who'd say bugger off I haven't even got started yet you know so you can't you know (laughs) you can't (laughs) oh seriously and you know I have to probably say like there were some fun memories and some funny bits in there right but when proper crazy lunatic Shanna emerged it wasn't fun for anybody Mm. and you know um yeah mate so I I think being aware of those behaviors in our mates um depending on the friendship and the friend and how they are and how you are, whether it might be a quiet conversation over a coffee, 
you know, to say, mate, I noticed that you're just really being a loose unit on the grog. Like, it's a worry. Is everything all right? Mm. Or I don't know, you know, it could be different horses for different courses, but um, we, we people who struggle with alcohol, if, if, if our mates just keep buying us rums and encouraging us to be a circus act, we're less likely to have a good hard look at ourselves than if our mates pull together and go, hey, Ollie, is everything all right, mate? Because I'm really worried about you on the grog. When that happens, it's very uncomfortable. It's very difficult. And people like me, towards the end, when I was in full-blown addiction, if people expressed concern, I pushed them away because I didn't want to know about it, right? Yeah. But that was not their fault. That was my fault. That was my fault. And it was a necessary thing for me to hear. Whether I did anything about it or not is not their responsibility. But if I have, you know, I I definitely, if, loved ones of mine are misbehaving on the grog. I'm never going to tell them what to do or how to do it. That doesn't work. What I say is, if you want to chat, I'm here. You know that I know that you know that I know what's going on. I am here. (laughs) (laughs) And I just give them, I just give them a big hug. I just give them a big hug and say, I love you. I am here for you when you're ready. Because you can't take, you cannot, you cannot make a horse drink water, can you? You know? No. And it's one of those ones, isn't it? You ask people in any situation, it's like, uh, I think I can business or yeah, personal lives. The hardest thing you can do is have those honest conversations and people view it as conflict. It's not, it's not conflict. It's not a yelling match, but it is that truly honest and tough conversations that we need to have. Um, and when Ollie, here's one for you. When is an Australian man most likely to open up about deep and meaningful things? Quiz yeah, question. After a couple of years. When? Yeah. After lots of booze. Yeah. So to sit down, to sit down, and I say man because blokes are um, blokes are a little less um, prone to engaging, you know, on deep and meaningful levels. And girls, we just love a good yarn. Gen- yeah, yeah. And that's that's generalising for sure. It is. But I mean, any DNM I've ever had with a bloke is always after he's had a few beers, and that's you know, that's just how it's always been. And so, how do we then go from the only time Ollie and his best mate Joe Blow can have a massive epic DNM is after half a bottle of rum at sunset. How do we take that and make it a coffee chat? You know, it's it's a big step. It's a big jump. But that is where we need to go because we've just got to evolve. We've just got mm. to evolve. And we are and it's happening. But oh, it's, well, you've, it takes some you've thrown, <laughs> you've, you've taken the boat. No, you're leading me in now. I want to talk about, yeah. <laughs> Am I giving you a segue? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're going to talk about, yeah, Damn being me. sober as being trendy. And I think very ironic that we're recording this in <laughs> July. Um, I'd love to know, firstly, your view of things like dry July. Good, bad, indifferent. What are your thoughts? Oh, look, I reckon, I reckon these challenges can be an excellent thing. In fact, I probably would lump a few things into one category here, right? So this is now Shanna speaking as the CEO and the professional. It's really funny. It's like Shanna, the alcoholic, you, you had a quite a bit. alcoholic. Hey, did you, you did you see that? I got a bit more serious. Yeah, stand by, wait for it. <laughs> but it's really funny, right? Shanna, the ex-alcoholic, is over here, and I it's and I just qualify this because 
when I'm sharing my experience and what worked for me or didn't work for me, that's just me as a human and as an individual, right? And I don't dare to presume that would work for someone else. When I speak as Shanna, the CEO of National Not-for-Profit Sober in the Country, I have to speak broadly because I, I can't possibly speak for everyone. So I've had to learn to do a lot of research, a lot of work and be extremely measured and balanced. And, I, and I'm very, very non-negotiably meticulous about that because there isn't one size conversation or solution or thing that fits all right. So I always pre, prelude these chats with that disclaimer because it's very important. Um, so when... So dry July, and let's look at trending alcohol and even zero alcohol, beer, wine and spirits, all of these trendy things, right, I believe personally are outstanding and really helpful and positive for social drinkers. In other words, people who don't have a problem with grog, bloody oath, rip in, go and do a 30-day challenge. Go and drink um, delicious imitation rum because you might want to go to the races with your mates and enjoy the taste of rum without the you know the impact beautiful excellent so that's category one social drinkers over here excellent good fun happy days category two are people who've gone past that point are and are in addiction or at vulnerable at risk sobriety community shanna is an example right Mm -hmm. 30-day challenges and alcohol-free beer, wine and spirits, et cetera, can be extremely, extremely problematic for humans like me because, I mean, to be completely frank about it, I'll use myself as an example. I was an alcoholic. I wasn't drinking for the taste. (laughs) I was drinking for the effect. Mm -hmm. And I actually had multiple, I had multiple relapses when I drank or or sought out those um, imitation alcohol drinks right because I'd go oh yummy tastes just like beer Mm." and then my brain would go "Mm, beer like Homer Simpson and then within no time I'm off to the bottle shop going bugger this for a joke I'm not getting drunk I didn't I never drank for the taste I drank to get drunk Mm -hmm. so I'm just trying to explain that in layman's terms for people that if you're a social drinker yay if you are a problem drinker not so much yay proceed with massive caution and ditto with Dry July and Dry July Foundation itself has a disclaimer saying that it's a challenge for social drinkers. And the reason for that is people like me could easily swing a month. I actually could Mm. do a month right towards the end of my illustrious alcoholism, right? I could swing a month off the booze and then guess what would happen after the booze? Month, Uh, free month. Hell of a big weekend, I reckon. Massively untidy. Shanna Banana would emerge and just get untidy and have a, bender and a relapse of huge proportions and then I would go back to everybody who had expressed concern and say see I told you I wasn't an alcoholic I just did dry July Mm. so there are risks and I'm not saying that is the same for everybody right but it's 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 very true and so sobriety as a trend I view it as a double-edged sword right because for social drinkers I love that it's trendy. I bloody love the fact that Ollie Laleve could go to a non-alcoholic bar in Sydney and order an amazing bloody imitation, whatever. Amazing. How good is that? Like that's happening. There are alcohol-free bars happening. It's incredible. But, you know, for, for the other side of the coin is for some of us, it's not a trend. 
for some of us, it can never be a trend. For some of us, it has to be a binary, all or nothing approach. And I'm such a person. I won't touch alcohol for a beer, wine and spirits. I don't like going and hanging out in dark pubs at five o'clock on Fridays because that's just not a sensible, safe place for someone in, you know, even long-term recovery. It's just not a good vibe for me. So I guess from an industry um, perspective, I'm very, very passionate about educating people on those two sides of the coin so that our vulnerable people can educate and be informed. Sorry, we can educate and inform our vulnerable people. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, it is pretty cool, isn't it, to think though that non-alcoholic beers are an exploding market. So there's, there mm. is an evolution and a revolution happening out there, but it's not for everybody. So horses for courses, be careful, you know, assess it on your needs, not because someone said it's trendy. That is a, I see a lot of risk, a lot of, yeah. good, a lot of risk. Mm. And I was going to say, um, it, it, it's really interesting I don't want to call them influencers. Two cracking young fellas who you've had come on board, both from the territory. So very much in that realm of social drinking and social fun. Um, yeah. Huey Dawson and Ollie Thorne. So Hugh was, geez, I don't even know what episode Hugh was on. Sometime last year and Ollie was the star. <laughs> no, that was, Hugh was oh, episode 25. them both. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah. Ollie was 39. Beautiful. So what's oh, it like having... beautiful boys. <laughs> What's it like having these, I love them. these fellas join the tribe and it's they've both shared oh. their own personal accounts for yeah, how they view it. And and I oh. and I'm gonna say to give this some context, since I came across mm. your work last year at some stage, I think early on in, you've you've shifted, it's not even a subconscious. There's people now consciously thinking about the relationship with alcohol and whether it's Mm. The, the feeling on a Sunday of waking up dusty and just staying in bed and on the couch or, or mm. if it's, mm. um, yeah, for, for me, like starting a business we, and actually seeing humans about go somewhere, like mm. It, mm. I can't do that if I wake up dusty on the weekends and you need so much clarity and, and that yeah. you can do so much yeah. when you're not getting bloody blind. Yeah. What's it like having <laughs> those guys speak out about it? Oh, I cannot say enough good things. Oh, if I may, Ollie, I'll, I'll again just for just for the benefit of your listeners who may not be aware of sober in the country, and it's an it's another essential thing I always chuck in here. Um, when I started this this not for profit and these conversations, if I had a dollar for every single time somebody on Twitter or somewhere go said something like, "Oh, you must be fun at parties," <laughs> or don't tell me what to do or just because I drink, it's not, doesn't mean I've got a problem, right? People are very quick to be hysterical about their God-given right to drink. Yeah. So I always, 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 always post <laughs> things on our social media saying, we don't give a stuff if you enjoy a beer. Good for you. We are not here to comment on your God-given right to enjoy a beer. We're actually here to raise essential discussions and awareness for our mates who can't or who are choosing not to or who are just choosing less beers, hence the birth of the okay to say no campaign, right? And so as a charity, our primary objective 
is not in being anti-alcohol or prohibitionist. I mean, for God's sake, I'm literally one of the biggest drinkers who ever lived. That would be like, <laughs> you I just find, did it in, in I find 40 it, years. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I find it absurd that people would think I would even judge. I'm like, do you do you look at anything I post, you freaking weirdos? Like seriously, I am not here to condemn people who have too much to drink. I'm here to make sure there's a way out for them, right? And I think. And I'll come back to Huey and Ollie, right? And you were saying, and also this ties in with the beginning of 2020 and now into 2021, the thing that has come home with a resounding, big, beautiful bang is the okay to say no campaign because people are finally going, oh, I see, I see. Sober in the country isn't here to tell us we're evil and bad if we're drink. They're just telling us it's okay if we don't and we can support our friends and it's like hello freaking Lily are you guys thank you for finally getting this because I swear I've been at this for a very long time and I put that down to our Australian patriotic love of a beer and if well, you can have one I mean can I, yeah yeah no I was going to jump in here <laughs> because last night I've, yeah um and the person who I've just recently interviewed was Heidi Morris and so a couple of days before I put up Heidi's little story. Um, so Heidi's a photographer. Anyway, I'd put up a post about you and then I was interviewing you. But the photo I had of Heidi to use was her just having a social beer at the pub. She's covered in yep. dirt. She's just done yep. a day's work. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, I was like, it's nearly so ironic that I've put Shanna oh, no, Heidi and that's having good. a beer and then there's going to be Shanna oh, again. She's... But it's so cool because it's like, it's this whole thing around. It's okay to say no. It's. It's just it's so is she the gorgeous little girl in the picture? She's like dusty in the paddock. Yeah, Yeah, I love that photo. Um, and you know what? You might notice that I'll occasionally chuck in a photo of someone having a beer. It could be my beautiful husband, Tim. Mm. Tim loves a beer. Tim has beer in our fridge in our house. I don't give a stuff. I don't want it, crave it, or need it. That's where I'm at in my journey. I hate the word journey, but whatever, it's appropriate, right? I don't give a shit if people have a beer. And it's really, oh God, I wish I could just brand that on my forehead. It would just save me a lot of work. But um, it's just essential we throw that in there because it allows people to relax and see the greater purpose here, right? It's mm-hmm. a bit like, Because being a non-drinker in Australia is about, I imagine, as tricky as it would have been once upon a time coming out as gay, as a country bloke. You just, you know, you're just up against it. People are there to judge you, make comments, say, why aren't you? Why would you do that? You're boring. It used to be fun. That makes Mm. you an Australian blah, freaking blah, blah, blah. So that's what we're shifting. And now back to Huey and Ollie, right? Mm. And one of my conscious very deliberate parts of the SITC mission is to transfer this discussion to your generation because one of our most beautiful favorite foundational quotes are you ready this is my fave um it's a beautiful quote by Desmond Tutu which says there comes a point where we need to stop going and pulling people out of the river when they've already drowned and we need to go upstream and find out why they keep falling in And that just gives me goosebumps all over my body because I was falling in when I was an 18-year-old Jillaroo lost and bewildered and turning to grog. I Mm. nearly drowned when I was 40, but for 20 years I was falling in. And I decided in my great 
almost 50 year old wise brain that what the hell are we doing? You know, we have all this money and funding and awareness in, in cure and rehab and hospitalization. And that's got its place, but I want to go upstream and I want to talk to these other kids on stations and say, guess what legends, (laughs) here's my story. Please let it not be yours. Here's what I've learned. Here's what I'll share. Blah, blah, blah. Mm. Lo and behold, lo and behold, it's catching on because I'm not judgmental. I'm totally authentic. I'm an absolutely heinous dag. I'm relatable to the Jillaroos and the Jackaroos and the Ollies because I'm just one of you. I'm just a person from the bush. You know, I get it. And when, when I started getting in at that younger level, I could not believe the response. I have to be honest with you, I was shaking in my boots. I was shaking mm. in my boots when I spoke at a station to young people because it meant so much to me. My whole body was shaking. I was like, please, God, let me get this right because this means everything to me. Because if I can say what needs to be said in front of these beautiful, amazing, fresh-faced, awesome humans with their lives ahead of them, then I will go to my grave a happy woman because I do not want my story to be repeated when it could be prevented. Yep. And the response, I don't know, must have been vibing out there in the universe, right? Because it's just always goes beautifully. And so I took it a step further and thought, I want to amplify now. I want to get some young people telling their stories because I, and I'll share this freely as well. The only reason I've had to repeat my own bloody story so many times is it, it was always going to take some bozo to get up and stand up and do it again and again and again and again until someone else stood next to me. It's mm. literally like being war- warfare in the trenches for me. Because who do you know from a country town that's going to step up publicly about their battle with alcoholism? Yeah. Nobody. <laughs> so because I went first for long enough, people started coming with me. But then in came the younger people who saw the merit in this combo all the way back now to these boys. So um when young lads and for those who are listening who may not have heard of Huey Dawson or Ollie Thorne right here are two gorgeous vibrant fit healthy young Australian future leaders in my opinion they're both Mm -hmm. just leadership leadership qualities galore which is not why I spoke to them mind you it's just because they're bloody beautiful approachable young fellas and um I met I met Huey Dawson at the Northern Territory Cattlemen's Association Conference in Alice and Will Evans, thank you, Will, big plug for Will there, introduced me and said, you really need to talk to this young fella. And I did. And so began a lovely little friendship. And um, so I would have met Huey back in March, I reckon. And since March, he has said to me many times, he said, Shan, that conversation we had has literally had the most massive impact on me. I'm so conscious about things that I'd never thought of. And so Hugh was kind enough to share those thoughts. And me being an ex-journo, I pull together thoughts and put them into blogs so that these boys can, you know, share their stories via Sober in the Country. So Hugh shared his thoughts and then young Ollie Thorne shared his thoughts. And they both, I mean, both of their stories just went gangbusters because Mm. they're cool. They're cool. They're cool dudes. They're really beautiful boys and they're very popular and they're decent blokes and they're just they've got a lot of friends and of course it's going to go you know half viral and Mm. to have to have cracked the lid on that generation 
with this conversation, I was, I'm going to confess to you, I was having a little cry last night, again, <laughs> but a happy one when I saw the, 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 the amount of people who had shared Ollie's story about how being trapped on a bloody um, livestock boat, scared out of his brain, not knowing if he was going to die or go down and sink, you know, trapped in ISO on a bloody boat for 12 months. I mean, it's such a brave story. And Ollie, what I love about it is that Ollie enjoys a beer. He's not going to give up drinking, but he's yeah. now got an awareness. He's got this rock solid awareness now that what happened to him last year on that boat and the level of drinking he was doing was not going to end well. So he pulled it up and he was consciously deciding, this is not me. I don't want to be like this. Bang, yeah. there's a life. There is a life changed because he spoke. And now he's dropped a pebble in the pond and it's rippling out to all his mates and there's nothing but massive amounts of powerful positive feedback. And that's why I had a little cry last night. I was like, oh, man. Oh, so good. he's been through so much. And like, yeah, I just remember yeah. talking to yeah. Ollie and he, like, you're alone. And looking at the article, he's alone in the sense of people on the boat um, hmm. uh, speaking different languages. And then there was the, the boat nearby that went down. And then one night the alarm rung and he just, yeah, mm. trying to contact his parents on the satellite phone and couldn't oh. do that. And just, I've got, I've got two questions I kind of want to finish with. Um, one, at, oh, firstly, did you want to talk more about, and I'll cut this out, but did you want to talk more about sober in the country specifically or do you think we've tied it in well? Or I can Probably have a... wouldn't mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't mind a bit. Maybe we could just go through yep. what, 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 what exactly it does, what's next, how can people help? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> how can people help? Um, cool. All right. Well, what I'll do, I've, yeah, I still have two questions, I reckon, but the, the one here wait. around, yeah, sober in the country specifically, can you yeah. explain to us, yeah, how, what you guys look like? Is it purely online? Are you out and about? Where can yeah. people find out more? And gotcha. what does yeah. the, the impact, like we, we're seeing your stories and we're seeing you out and about, but mm -hmm. what does the impact mm -hmm. look like over the next couple of years? Yeah. That's way more than two questions in one. That's about eight. Yeah, it's all good. Because <laughs> I assume you're going to cut a lot of stuff and do what you yeah, do yeah. with your magical unicorns. And that's excellent. Well, an okay, so um, <laughs> how good is it having those? <laughs> no, I, um, I might edit this one, I think. I like it. Oh, I good. like this chat. Oh, I, well, oh, Fleabag. Fleabag needs to go do a wee. There you go, Fleabag. <laughs> there you, darling. It's my old blue dog. Um. Okay, so um, so when people ask what sober in the country is exactly and what we do, so it's kind of three tiered, if you like. Um, tier number one is we have an amazing, amazing group called the Bush Tribe, which I created with the help of my magical unicorn slash executive assistant, <laughs> Flip. And what that is, it's it's similar to a Facebook group, but it's not on Facebook. It's a space where you can sign on and join a forum and you can call yourself whatever you want and be 100% anonymous and chat with a whole big bucket load of other rural people who are either cutting back or quitting grog, right? Peer support is essential for overcoming problem drinking. It really is. And it's a lonely thing to give up or quit grog in Australia, but it's going to be less lonely because that's what we're achieving. But for now, it's like a soft, warm hug. It's a place for people to land. They come into the bush tribe 
they could be 18, they could be 58, they might be binge drinking, they might be a Shanna who's gone all the way. We don't give a stuff. We're just like, here we are, no judgment, come and have a yarn. And however we can help you by sharing, that's what we do here. Bang. It's beautiful. So that's the Bush Tribe. Um, so peer support. Second thing we do is broad scale advocacy, which is me in all my glory going forth, shaking my fist and waving my banner and saying, Australia, what are we doing? Like, what are we doing? We have got to do better for rural and remote Australians in this space. So I kind of fight for awareness and for change and education for people like us. So peer support, broad scale awareness, and just straight talk, straight talk around a very complex topic. So through our social media, and we're on everything, it's all linked on the website. I just, you know, we just share raw, God's honest, straight talk and truth in a country language for country people, laser focused on the bush, mm -hmm. laser focused, unashamedly, we stay in our lane. We exist for this group of people very intentionally because no one else looks at us. So that's what we do. We're a bush charity, we're grassroots, we're focused and unashamed about that. And um, yeah, it's it's incredible. So these days we're reaching around 100,000 people through our social media collectively. Oh. You know when those little stats and... Oh, yeah, I use them too. Your <laughs> yeah, your post has reached ball and I go, oh, shit, that was a good one. Yeah, you know, yeah. we don't even promote. We don't even promote our posts. So our organic reach is around 100,000 people. Wow. Um, yeah, it's beautiful. It's just amazing. And again, I don't say that because, and I'm always very quick to say, there's nothing special about me or my story. I believe the whole reason this beautiful little charity is, is gaining traction is because my story is so damn common and so ordinary. I just am the person who carried the message and now it's got its own momentum and I'm just like you bloody ripper like I actually hope for a day where you will never see my face on that Instagram feed I don't I just want to phase that out I want it to be Ollie's face I want it to be Huey I want it to be everyone else's faces because I've mm -hmm. done the hard lifting and now it's now it's going and I just want people to step up and help me and um yeah so we share stories we share stories um we amplify we amplify stories and um, oh, should I drop that little bomb on here? We can yeah, always edit it out. Not. Hey, yeah, we yeah. We can always edit it so, out. <laughs> drop it. You know how we're going, you know how we're going through another round of flipping COVID and now that we're New South Welshmen, we're diseased and to be persecuted and locked down forever. Sorry, that's my sense of humour. Um, so I'm, I'm stuck now. I can't travel. I can't do anything Massive lost income, oh, blah, blah, blah. Because I travel and speak as an ambassador for the charity and that's an income stream for the charity. So that's mm -hmm. gone. So we're going to pivot, Ollie. I believe they call it pivoting. I hate the word, but anyway, we're going to pivot and we're going to do our own podcast and we will amplify those voices through a potty. Yeah. Shit, yeah. Yeah. Welcome yeah, to the team. Yeah. So I know. Yeah, because imagine can you imagine imagine a bushy who's got to drive 200 k's home after a shift of shearing or planting or whatever the hell's going on and he's got a podcast from another rough and tumble bush fella mm. on a topic that amazing so yeah again we will be laser focused we won't be aiming for 
Um, anything outside of our remit, we're just going to smash out some amazing stories about people. Are you doing cutting that? back or giving up grog? Yes, sir. I am. How good. Yep. When we when can we yeah. expect to see the first episodes? I would say in approximately October to coincide with October. Ah, gotcha. <laughs> yes. So this is hot off the press. We haven't announced this. Yeah. There you go. But Big now we are. Here. There you go. There you go. So that's what we're going to do to deal with this latest round of COVID. We'll just push through and do what we can with what we have. Weekly podcast. No, nah. When I can. Yeah, no. Are you supposed to do them weekly? (laughs) Big commitment. (laughs) Yeah, no, I truly I will I won't commit to how many and when. I will just do quality over quantity and I'll do them when I can with the best I can get and just let it grow organically. I'm I it's really funny. I don't have any ambitions to when I do things right, I don't do it for to fit or conform I do it because it's the right thing to do and yeah so it'll just evolve as it's meant to I believe yeah you know it's just it's just going to be a really cool way to amplify stories that's what potties are beautiful for so that's what's next as well yeah unreal Mm. I've got a question that I ask absolutely everyone I love it how each podcast some people have just their normal like quick fire but Instead of asking you, what would you say to 18 year old Shan? Because let's be real, 18 year old Shan has learned a hell of a lot over her time. So when it comes to being able to influence and impact a whole array of people, it's Wednesday morning, you're heading to a school tomorrow and you're chatting to a bunch of year 10 students and you get to give them any life advice or ideas of, why pursuing a career in agriculture can be really meaningful or living in rural Australia. What's your message to the year 10 students? I would say to them, never, ever, ever underestimate the impact you can make in the rural space fairly quickly if you have a go. It truly blows my mind. And we were talking about this before we came on air, weren't we? How rural Australia is geographically freaking enormous, but as a community, it's teeny weeny tiny. And if you have a vision to achieve something, there is no place that is probably more user-friendly than to smash a goal in a fairly short time than in rural Australia. It's a tiny sector and with some really hard work and commitment and vision and serious dedication, you can pretty much do whatever the hell you want to very quickly so do not limit your thinking as to what you could achieve in ag i love it love it (laughs) yeah seriously Mm. thank you so much for coming on for a yarn today yeah i've been i feel like chasing you for a little while and i'm so happy that our paths have finally crossed and we got to sit down and record how how can people like you and Mm. i yeah yeah everyday people all hopefully those big businesses that listen to this podcast help out with what you're trying to do. So as anyone who has started a not-for-profit will share, the most excruciating backbreaking work comes from sustainability. Where do you get your funding? How do you stay afloat? As I said earlier, we have been so blessed to have some philanthropic organisations recognise what we're doing is essential, step up and seed fund us. But then, you know, you've got to look at the future. And so... I do not have any 
shame whatsoever about saying to listeners, if you see value in us changing and saving the lives and creating sustainable rural Australians, we need your help. We seriously need your help. We get absolutely zero support from government, like not a cent. And which I find extraordinary because for me, at the end of the day, I, I have a, a very, very, I would have thought logical philosophy that if the men and women of rural and remote Australia are good enough to get up and show up in flood and drought and pandemic and provide food and fibre, whether directly or indirectly for the rest of the nation, I would have thought they were good enough to get a hand when they stick, when they stick their hand up and acknowledge they need some support. You know, and what's out there is woefully insufficient. It is woefully insufficient. And so a charity like ours, with more funding, with more donations, with more support, like for, for instance, we could, we could use two new staff tomorrow in a second, but you've got to find funding. Mm. So if you're a big ag business and you've seen the impact that we're having, and I might add, by the way, we've got some beautiful big um, pastoral companies and agribusinesses stepping up and in and around us now. So we need you to do that. We need your help. So shameless, shameless request for support. If you feel like, you know, you see this as essential work, and I bloody promise you it is because most of what we do is behind the scenes. But if you visit, wait for it, www.soberinthecountry.org. <laughs> it's all laid out. It's so user-friendly. We've got a beautiful website. There's a donation portal. It's all tax deductible. And there's other ways you can help. You might want to rock out one of our massively excellent trucker caps or <laughs> merch, or you might want to invite me to speak at your event, whatever. You know, there are so many different ways you can help us keep on keeping on, and we bloody need your help. And we will make it happen with or without the government's support because Australian people out there deserve it. And that's our mission. So, yeah, we'll just keep rolling. I think I had about a million questions I wanted to ask Shan today. From my own understanding, it was about, I guess, taking that leap and, and pursuing something and making it work in the form of what she's done through the Sober in the Country charity. But then I guess as we peel back the layers and understand more about the story of who Shan is and, and why she's having such an impact that she is was a hell of a journey that she went on that started in her teenage years. There were elements of this story that was pretty confronting, honest and raw. If it brought up anything of concern for you or you just want to have a chat to someone about it, Lifeline is always there to help and chat to you. You can reach them on 13 11 14. If you want to find out more about Shanna's work, you can head over to Sober in the Country, which is soberinthecountry.org. I think what she's doing, how she's shifting the conversation around alcohol and how we interact with each other and, and what is it that's actually, when we start to peel back the layers, what is it that makes those fun moments fun? Um, if you want to find out more about her work, support her work, jump over and head to them. And and I guess from my perspective, her work has really started to shift the, the consciousness of, um, I guess, yeah, ha- how we interact with each other. As a side note, the Antola Trading Podcast will be back this Saturday morning. You can find it on all your favorite platforms from 5am and um, can't wait to bring that episode to you. Look after yourselves, stay safe, stay sane. And we'll see you on Saturday.